Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan remain at loggerheads over the future of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Is the United States making matters worse? And the dispute between the United Kingdom and Mauritius over Diego Garcia is heating up. Is there a sensible way forward? Plus, we discuss Japan, India, and Gulf state engagement in Africa. Are there opportunities for multilateral cooperation to advance shared interests? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan are resuming talks over the future of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, also known as the GERD. Is the United States playing a constructive role? Joining me to discuss the GERD and other topics are Payne Knopf, a senior advisor to the Center for Middle East and Africa at the U.S. Institute of Peace, Hassam Darwishe, a researcher at Institute of Developing Economies at the Japan External Trade Organization, and Alante Samarnayake, the Director of Strategy and Policy Analysis Program at CNA. All of our participants are here today in their personal capacity. Okay, in mid-August, there was a resumption of technical and legal talks between Egypt, Ethiopia, and Sudan over the GERD. Now, this followed a meeting at the African Union where Egypt and Sudan agreed to continue negotiations even while Ethiopia begins to fill the reservoir. Ethiopia has begun filling the reservoirs of a controversial mega-dam on the Blue Nile. That's according to the country's water minister. Egypt and Sudan had requested the Grand Renaissance Dam not be filled until an agreement is reached. Peyton, despite this news, it doesn't seem like a moment that we can have a collective sigh of relief because everything is okay. Can you start us off with some background? What is the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam and why is this disputes over its operation so important? Sure, Jed, and first, thanks for having me. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam is one of the most significant hydroelectric projects to be built on the African continent. And the concern, of course, of its construction over the last number of years and the Egyptian side has been that it will deprive uh, Egypt of one of its primary resources, which is, of course, the Nile. Uh, the Ethiopians view it as a historic uh, opportunity to advance their own development. Uh, and in fact, it has been entirely self-financed uh, by Ethiopia. And so this has set up what has unfortunately become uh, sort of a zero-sum debate uh, around uh, the construction of this dam. And as you said, it came to a sort of fever pitch earlier this summer when Ethiopia began the initial filling. Uh, the, the other important element to bear in mind is that, of course, you have Sudan, uh, as you said, instrumental to these discussions, the Nile, of course, flowing through it as well. Uh, and one of the things that's changed over the last almost exactly a year is the Sudanese position. Prior to President Omar al-Bashir's removal from power last year, Ethiopia uh, and Sudan had been in lockstep, more or less, with respect to the GERD. The Sudanese position has been a bit more nuanced since Bashir was opposed uh, by the military. And that has uh, added a further layer of complication uh, to the discussions. Okay, so we have Ethiopia filling because this is important for its plans for electrification. Sudan has flip-flopped from one position to another. And then, Hussam, where is Egypt on this? What does Cairo want to achieve? All right, sure. Thank you. Um, I think Egypt is mainly concerned about uh, losing its control of the Nile River. 
It fears that uh, the GERD could add to the water shortages already hitting uh, many Egyptian villages. Um, being almost entirely dependent on the Nile for its water supply and irrigation, Egypt also sees the dam as a potentially existential threat that will put at risk uh, the water supply for its 100 million people. So Egypt wants Ethiopia to share with it more detailed information about the GERD because there is a lot the Egyptians do not know about uh, the safety and operation of the dam, for instance. And Egypt wants to know how much water, for instance, is reserved during the period the dam is being filled, and then how much will be discharged once it's filled, uh, right? Egypt is also worried about the changes the GERD uh, would have on the ecosystem in the river especially on both the quality and the quantity of the water, which would also impact uh, fisheries, agriculture, and farming. And as you know, those sectors, by the way, provide jobs for thousands of uh, Egyptian workers. Uh, that's why Egyptian leaders are pushing for uh, reassurances that the country's water supply and flow will be maintained. They are seeking a legally binding uh, agreement or commitment that will Number one, regulate the filling and the operation of the GERD. Number two, guarantees that Egypt's water allocation will not decrease uh, as stipulated in the 1959 agreement, which is, by the way, opposed by Ethiopia and other upstream states. And uh, number three, Egypt as well as Sudan want binding commitments related to the safety, water release and compensation for the decline of water in case of droughts. So I think it's fair to say that for both Egypt, Ethiopia, and arguably for Sudan, like this is existential, like how the dam is filled and all of these issues that Asim, you raised about how the flow, you know, how it would manage drought. I mean, these are really critical. And this is in part why in September in 2019, Al-Sisi turned to the U.S. and said, hey, can you help broker these talks between the three parties? And apparently they got pretty close. The African Union says almost 90 percent of the issues were resolved. But as they got closer to a final agreement in February, the Ethiopians balked and they accused the U.S. of favoring Egypt. And now, well, I mean, I think things have gone worse. The U.S. has decided to halt over almost $130 million in foreign assistance to Ethiopia because of this stalemate, I guess, as a pressure point. Peyton, I know you have some strong views here. Is this the right approach? And is there a way that the U.S. can, I think, walk back from this problematic position? And then how does it play a constructive role? So, Judd, I think there's an important distinction here, which is that there's there are the technical issues around the GERD and around the use of water, and then there are the political issues. And as you said, I think by all accounts, there has been progress uh, on some of the technical questions. That progress really came about more when uh, the South Africans, on behalf of the African Union, stepped in a few months ago after the U.S. effort had more or less stalled. It's really the political issues that are that are outstanding. And, and as Hussam said, to a great extent, that's rooted in a lot of the history around this issue. The Ethiopian position has been that the previous agreements, uh, 1959 and, and even before that, were colonial era agreements to which Ethiopia was not a party. And that is actually factually uh, correct. And so that's sort of the genesis uh, of the dispute here. Now, to answer your, your precise question about the United States role, it has been complicated by the baggage, as I said, of a perception of U.S. bias towards Egypt. And unfortunately, the reports of a U.S. suspension 
certain elements of assistance to Ethiopia more or less reinforce that perception. Um, and while Ethiopian politics is highly, highly polarized at the moment, one of, if not the only uh, unifying political issue in Ethiopia is in fact support for the GERD. And so this is a very valuable political commodity in Ethiopia. So I think what we can expect is that the U.S. assistance suspension will actually harden positions rather than create a context in which you can resolve not just the technical issues, uh, but the political issues uh, as well. Where do we go from here, right? Like, what if this is going to harden the Ethiopian position, it doesn't seem like that is going to be advantageous for a resolution. Is there a new position that the U.S. could adopt, or is there a different negotiator or mediator? I mean, where where do we go? Yeah, I think it's really concerning. I mean, as you know, the Ethiopians began uh, the initial filling of the dam without an agreement, despite U.S. pressure. And I think that, again, is a, is a firm indicator of how little leverage, to some extent, the United States has through pressure. What that suggests, however, is that if there were a more neutral mediation effort, and this is uh, the role that I think the South Africans have been trying to play and, and playing admirably, I must say, to put some proposals on the table to resolve sort of the broader political issues, you might see some some progress. The last thing I would just say, Judd, is that what we haven't, I know we'll talk about it later in the episode, but we haven't touched much on the role of the Gulf states. And I would say that, you know, a number of the Gulf states have significant investments, not just in Egypt, but also in Sudan and Ethiopia, both political and economic investments. And so I think one of the things that could help break the deadlock is if there were a more concerted discussion about how to reinforce not just data sharing, as Hussam said, which is, is both important on the Ethiopian side and on the Egyptian side, frankly, but how how, if there were an environment for more transparent data sharing, how external investment, not just from the West, but from the Gulf states, could help reinforce uh, a different vision for water sharing in this region and promote economic development and certainly energy development uh, across Northeast Africa. So there is an opportunity here, I think, to sort of flip the script and lead to some positive outcomes. But it's going to take uh, a bit more nuanced and, and sophisticated diplomacy by the United States and, and others to do that. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. Hussam, do you want to just uh, react briefly to Peyton's recommendations? I do agree with uh, Peyton, but the problem here is that the balance of power is definitely uh, on the side of Ethiopia. Um, as you know, as a downstream country, Egypt uh, cannot actually do much except put diplomatic pressure on Ethiopia to sign a deal. But so far, Egypt's diplomacy has failed. The Egyptians' government... Uh, has failed to restrict the construction or even filling of the GERD through its attempts to rally the Arab League, the UN Security Council, or even the United States. And this is, I think, Ethiopia does know this very well, that uh, Egypt really have very few cards to play in these negotiations. And on the other side, Ethiopia is trying actually to avoid having a binding agreement with Sudan and Egypt that would limit its future hydropower projects on the Nile. And this is uh, understandable. The GERD is an issue of national pride, and millions of Ethiopians are very much invested uh, in the project. Besides, uh, Ethiopia has really greater support than Egypt from other riparian states in the Nile Basin because they also want to utilize the Nile without being restricted by downstream states. Uh, and Ethiopia also has uh, the support of the international community because they want the Ethiopian government to bring power to its people. Many researchers say that more than half of the Ethiopian population don't have access to electricity. And the international community also wants Ethiopia to prosper and to store water resources, 
not only for itself, but for downstream uh, countries that would help mitigate uh, uh, floods and uh, droughts. So I think that the three states are facing really an urgent need to develop a platform whereby they can engage directly to solve complicated problems regarding the utilization of the Nile waters and operation of dams, uh, by the way, not only in Ethiopia, but across the Nile, including those in Sudan and Egypt. Well, you know, I think this is going to be a great place to come back to as we get to our last conversation about multilateralism, because I do think that, you know, the riparian states and the Gulf, as Peyton mentioned, I mean, we have to think about these in broad terms, not just bilaterally or even trilaterally. I want to move to our our next topic, which is actually about another bilateral dispute. And this is a place where I think the U.S. could play an important role. So I'm talking here about Diego Garcia, which is a small island which Mauritius and the United Kingdom claim sovereignty over. The decolonization of Mauritius has not yet been completed and will not be completed until Mauritius is able to exercise sovereignty over the Chagos Archipelago. Milante, why is this island so important to both countries? And if you could help us understand the current state of play, both in the UN and the International Court of Justice. Sure. Well, for the UK, it's an, it's a piece of territory. No country wants to give up their territory. They refer to it as the British Indian Ocean Territory. Essentially, having this territory in the center of the Indian Ocean, it, it gives them automatic membership in regional institutions like the Indian Ocean Rim Association, the Indian Ocean Naval Symposium. So there are advantages to having the territory as well. Uh, they, they date their claim back to the 1800s, so it's really a colonial era claim, but it also has particular salience given the global Britain discussion that's going on in London now, essentially a post-Brexit British identity abroad beyond the, the European Union. So it, it's it's really important for the UK, of course. For Mauritius, the, the issue is really tied up into issues of decolonization and its search for essentially when it won independence in the 60s. It believed that the Chagos Islands were improperly removed from its territory by the UK. And also the Chagossian people were essentially evicted from Diego Garcia due to the construction of the base. So for Mauritius, certainly the Chagossian element of it and the territorial claim, those are really the the big drivers of it for, for Mauritius. And then where are we in the UN and the ICJ on this issue? It's a good question. Really, Mauritius seems to be on on a winning streak, but I would say the the biggest development was really last year when the International Court of Justice, they issued an advisory opinion that essentially went Mauritius's way. And it talked about how the UK, they're under an obligation to basically leave the Chagos. And they they even said as rapidly as possible. So it was uh, pretty much on Mauritius's side what what it wanted to get out of that. And then just in terms of international diplomacy beyond legal venues like the ICJ, the the UN General Assembly, Mauritius has been able to 
wield a lot of power, right? especially for a small state. There was a resounding vote after the ICJ opinion was delivered. It was 116 in favor of it versus six, essentially endorsing the, the international Court of Justice advisory opinion. And as recently as this year, the UN world map was revised where the British Indian Ocean Territory is no longer listed and the Chagos are listed as being under Mauritian control. So there's very much this sense of, okay, Mauritius is, has a lot of momentum and they're really on a, on a winning streak here. Well, and unlike the GERD, where the U.S. is trying to mediate between, you know, three key partners, there's a direct interest in how this issue is resolved for the United States because it uses that base in Diego Garcia. And it has tried to claim this is a bilateral issue, although the State Department in 2019 did question the jurisdiction of the ICJ. Why is the U.S. being so coy here? I mean, Mauritius has said that it would let the U.S. military remain in Diego Garcia after the withdrawal by the U.K., Mauritius ambassador to the UN even offered to lease the base to the United States for 99 years. So that would be even longer than they currently have access, which is through 2036. So can you help us unpack the U.S. position here? Sure. Well, I think first it's important to understand just how critical the base is for U.S. military operations. So westward operations are supported through the access to the base in Diego Garcia for operations in the Middle East, where the U.S. has had combat operations for the past 30 years. But then it's also critical for operations eastward in the Pacific. And, you know, especially in, in Washington for the past few years, there's been this discussion about great power competition and the, the threat posed by China as a rising power. So so this, this base is just absolutely vital for U.S. military operations just globally. I think in terms of the the U.S. position, it's beyond the the, the driver of, of just the criticality of the base. I, I think there's a understandable sort of reversion to the status quo. Essentially, the the basing arrangement for the U.S. it's it's working now. It's with the U.K., which is arguably the U.S.'s closest ally. So the U.S. has a deal in place essentially through 2036. Then on the other hand, there's a risk there because essentially for the next 15 years, there's a risk of the U.S. being left behind essentially in the court of international opinion and international law, and especially since Mauritius has been on this, this winning streak. So it's, it's just going to be important, I think, just for U.S. policymakers to just take a clear look at what are U.S. national interests over the next 15 years, essentially, and, and just and make, make that calculation of the, the clear pro, pros and cons. Do you think that they will eventually see it that way, right? Do you think the U.S. policymakers will eventually make a determination that addresses um, the issues that you made, or will they stick with the U.K. and will be in a stalemate for the foreseeable future? It's a good question. I, I don't know how, you know, this is, it feels so far down the road, 20, 2036. So I, I don't know to what extent this, this issue is, is on the radar. I, I think we're just, as, as human na- nature, we're focused on sort of what, what's most immediate and upfront to us. But uh, 
yeah, it's it, it's a, it's a good point that you know, fifteen years can just fly by like that, and this this will just be immensely controversial in terms of renewing the agreement in twenty thirty six. Just just given the what international law has stated, regardless of whether you agree with the jurisdiction argument, given what the international uh, diplomatic institutions how they have voted, and just of course public opinion. Right now, as you mentioned, Mauritius they. They have publicly stated that they will allow the base to to continue if if the U.S. were to pursue an arrangement with them bilaterally and right for 99 years. So it it, it does it, you know, it does seem like that that is an option for the U.S. I, I think just essentially just putting it on the radar of U.S. policymakers just and and making the, the the conscious deliberate decision to really just check in with the U.K. and and really talk about what are the clear options here and, and essentially where, where the wind is blowing. But it, it does seem that Mauritius is determined to to keep pursuing this. And, you know, it, it continues to score victories, including as recently with the U.N. world map. So it, it just it doesn't seem to be going away. Well, if if listeners want to learn more about the dispute over D.A. Garcia, there is no better place to go than CNA and Elante's work on this has been consistent, high level, really sophisticated, really insightful. So I recommend that you check out whether it's her recent article in Defense One, which we'll put in the show notes, or just check out the work that her think tank is doing. It's great stuff. So let's move on to our final conversation. And this is the last of our small little mini series on Africa's foreign relations. And you may recall that we've talked about France, we've talked about the US, we've talked about China. And for this final episode, I want to talk about trio of countries, actually two countries, and then some more countries, Japan, India, and the Gulf. And Hassan, let me start with you since you live in Japan. Let's talk a little bit about Japan's approach to Africa and if you're seeing any shifts during or after COVID-19. All right, sure. Thank you very much. Well, as a background, uh, Japan was the leading ODA donor to Africa um, in 1980s. And when developed countries scaled down their ODA for African states following uh, the end of the Cold War, Japan uh, launched uh, the Tokyo Conference on African Development, or TCAD, in 1993. With TCAD, Japan wanted to raise its political status in the international community by winning the support of the African countries uh, for its speed to reform the UN and for Japan to get a permanent seat in the Security Council. Japan was also seeking diplomatic support from African states uh, for its maritime disputes with uh, China. However, later, as a growing number of African states were recording positive growth rates, Japan's approach shifted from looking at Africa as a destination of aid to a big potential market, actually, in its own right. In other words, uh, the Japanese government wanted to have kind of partnership with Africa. And as you know, we in Japan, we are facing really serious problems at home, such as aging population and shrinking market. And TCAD has become really an important part of Japanese diplomacy in Africa in its search for a new market. That's why Japan focuses uh, on infrastructure and human resource development. However, for the most part, the foreign ministry here, I think, does not have clear and unified strategic goals in Africa as a whole. And that is because maybe TCAD is not a bilateral forum, but a multilateral framework that is organized by Japan and incorporates other stakeholders. 
although it's presenting itself as an economic partner, still Japan has a very small amount of investment in Africa compared to that of China, for example, in terms of investment inflows and human resources. China is still the largest trading partner of Africa, and Africa now is China's major import source. So Japan is looking for ways to increase the entry of Japanese companies into Africa. But the Japanese companies remain hesitant due to political, security, economic, and other risks. And maybe the COVID-19 and the shrinking of the African market or its output will also affect how the Japanese companies cut Africa and the potential for the Japanese companies in the African market. But through TCAD, Japan uh, can still believe that it can build a strategic partnership with Africa through increasing its trade market share and FDI uh, beyond the handful of countries that uh, now dominate the Japanese trade relations uh, with the continent. I think that's right. And I was at TCAD in Yokohama last summer. And what I was impressed by is that Japan does, while its trade is dwarfed by by China or the EU or even the US, it does seem to try to be to try to focus on certain sectors that make the most sense for Japan African relations. And that's where I think Japan may be going as we deal with COVID, right? A much more focus on the health sector. Nalante, I'd like you to answer the same question from India's perspective. And what are the key drivers in the India-Africa relation? And do you see any changes in the coming years? Sure. Well, in terms of drivers, I I think it's uh, historical, of course, just in in terms of the trade and the the flows of people and the Indian diaspora that lives in Africa. So there's real historical and people-to-people ties. Gandhi, of course, spending formative years in Africa. There's a real emotional and I would say also ideological connection there with, with the, the post-colonial drive for independence and uh, the, the Bandung Conference in the 50s of Asian and African countries essentially claiming their, their independence and sovereignty after colonialism. Also economics. Indians will talk about how Africa, it's the, the third largest trade partner. Also, Africa, in terms of where India looks to provide its assistance overseas beyond its immediate neighboring South Asian countries, Africa is really the largest region for its assistance, uh, mainly in the forms of lines of credit. Also, energy. India has increasingly become dependent on hydrocarbon imports, oil imports, gas imports, and it's getting a rising amount of oil from West Africa. Also, diplomatic drivers. Uh, Prime Minister Modi has made it a big point to to just make a a lot of visits. If you include uh, visits at the prime minister level, president and vice president level, more than 30 visits to the continent. And India also, I I think they're up to 47 now countries where they have diplomatic presence. And then also defense ties. India really prioritizes its contributions to UN peacekeeping operations. So really, the the PKOs, India's relief after natural disasters, like after uh, Mozambique last year. Let's go to the Gulf. And sorry, Peyton, you've got to talk about several countries. But Qatar, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have increased their engagement in recent years. Some of the the largest number of new embassies in this region have come from the Gulf. But it's not just about their relationship with Africa. In some respects, it's about their relationship 
you know, between each other that has been such an important dynamic. And we really need to understand that if we're going to understand the broader story. Maybe a little bit, Peyton, just about what are these dynamics between and with Africa and the Gulf? And then specifically, because that's this is where it really matters, is how is it playing on the horn? Sure. And I think it, just to complicate matters further, I would add Turkey into that mix as well, given it's close and increasingly close relationship with Qatar. But you're right. I mean, it's it's a really volatile and fast moving picture, I think, in terms of these Middle Eastern states engagements uh, in the Horn. And I think it's animated by a couple of different things. The first is that all of these states are really looking for strategic depth, right? And while we make sort of a, a binary distinction between the Middle East uh, and the Horn of Africa, these states don't. They see it sort of as part of a shared geopolitical space uh, of which they're an integral part. And so th- that's the first piece. The second piece is that there's a an ongoing and very heated contestation over the role of, of Islam in politics, uh, which at risk of, of oversimplifying, you more or less have two camps uh, in that regard. You have Qatar and Turkey on one hand and Saudi Arabia uh, and the UAE on the other. And that contest is very much playing out uh, in the horn as well. And then the third element is sort of competition over the control of economic corridors and uh, as part of these states' economic diversification strategies. And so what you've seen is sort of a, a melding of, of economic and security interests and the promotion of those interests really accelerating in the horn of the last number of years. And that's exemplified most concretely by the proliferation of ports uh, and bases on the western side of the Red Sea by these Middle Eastern states. I think nearly a dozen uh, have popped up uh, in less than five years. I think what we need to be talking more about is how to foster some sort of detente among those states in the Horn of Africa so you don't end up with a Libya scenario because uh, certainly in the context of the historic transition that are unfolding in Ethiopia and Sudan, there is no shortage uh, of instability in this region. And so we need to be looking at, as we were talking about earlier in the context of the GERD, uh, opportunities not just for diffusing tension, but for fostering uh, cooperation, And whether that means on uh, energy security, on water security, on other issues. There are shared interests, certainly on the economic front, but we also need to be actively diffusing this political competition before it spins out of control. I think you're exactly right. And this is something that that we at CSIS have been writing a lot about, whether it's the growing external interest in Africa, but then also, how do you think about multilateralism? And I, I think that's where I want to spend the last couple of minutes that we have on the podcast. And we've written a couple of things recently just about COVID-19, and all the countries that we've mentioned have really ramped up their response to COVID-19. Uh, the UAE, I know we've been talking about them in terms of the Horn of Africa uh, and Qatar, but they've done a, a tremendous amount of assistance in West Africa as well. Japan has been very engaged, and so is India in the Indian Ocean response. And I, I just like to spend a little bit thinking about how do you use multilateralism to address some of these challenges, whether it's defusing, Peyton, as you said, but also thinking more pro, you know, proactively, affirmatively about future challenges and working together collaboratively and successfully. So Hassam, maybe just start from your perspective. Is this the approach that Africans want? Do they want a more multilateral, unified approach? Or is there some value in working with different bilateral partners one by one? I think that having a unified approach or or one approach towards Africa is really very hard to obtain or is very difficult. 
Many international actors are asserting their political and economic influence in the region uh, for access and control over natural resources. And they, on these international actors, they also have competing foreign policy visions for, for the region. And many tend to think of the 54 African states as one place or body. But the reality is different. African states uh, are very diverse politically, economically, and culturally. Besides, the interests of the African state themselves are divergent due to internal and external dynamics. So I think that the African states themselves, whether individually or collectively, need to have kind of strategic or unified outlook vis-a-vis their international uh, partners to make sure that foreign presence in their uh, continent would address grievances that underpin instability and inequalities and not entrench them in the first place. Yeah, we've been saying this a lot in our work that Africans have to be clear about what they're looking for from their external partners. It's not enough just to say we don't want to have to choose sides, but what are the the ways and the principles and the frameworks in which they want uh, to engage with their international partners? Hayden, you've thought a lot about multilateral arrangements in the Red Sea. Are, are there principles that you think should underpin these types of engagements? So I'll offer two thoughts, Judd. I mean, I, one of the challenges to multilateralism in the Red Sea is, is this geographic and falsely so the sort of geographic seam, right, where you don't have any groups that really are inclusive of both the Middle Eastern and, and the African uh, states. Having said that, whether it's the African Union, whether it's the Intergovernmental Authority uh, on Development, whether it's this newly established Saudi-led uh, Red Sea Council, there are efforts at different formats to bring certain constellations of states together. And I think that's important. And there doesn't have to be a one-size-fits-all uh, sort of model, right? The idea is to figure out what sort of interlocking synapses for cooperation can be constructed on, on various issues. If we take away nothing from the last uh, two, two and a half years of tremendous political change in Sudan and Ethiopia. It's that Africans are looking for a say in their own governance and how their how their resources are used, uh, and particularly youth in these countries that were on the vanguards of the protest movements that led to those transitions. And so one of the things that I think is concerning to some extent uh, about Middle Eastern actors' engagements in these regions is those engagements are not predicated on what we would consider a commitment to, to sort of liberal democracy, even though that's precisely what we see time and again, the state, the, the populations of the states in these regions aspiring towards. So I think when we think about U.S. policy or maybe U.S. and, and European policy towards this region, it's really important to think about the multilateral space as one that is rooted in these values that are actually going to respond to the aspirations of these people, uh, of the people rather in these regions. And it's really up, I think, to, to Western policymakers to put their money where their mouth is uh, in that regard. So we're dealing with new geographies where there often isn't a pre-existing format to navigate whatever conflict or issue there is. Different types of governments, whether it's democratic or increasingly authoritarian. And how do you think about engaging with governments and people? You know, this is pretty sticky right now. And we're in a period where multilateralism is not popular, or at least not popular within U.S. policy. But Nalante and I found an example. I mean, she was very familiar with it. I wasn't where multilateralism is working and or at least there is a sustained commitment to it. And that is in the Asia Pacific region with the Quad Plus framework. And you and I, Nalante, were on a different podcast and you brought this up and I was really excited about it. And so we decided to write an article on Lawfare about is there a 
way to export the quad plus framework to Africa? Like if, what would it be if Africa had its own version? And can you share some of the ideas that we had that we put into this article about the pitfalls, but also the opportunities? Sure. Yeah. Essentially, we talked about a current effort that is is really being led by the U.S. in the Indo-Pacific to work with allies and partners, essentially the Quad, the sort of the core countries are the, the U.S., India, Japan, and Australia. And then the plus is the, the other allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific. But essentially, they, they started coordinating in terms of having a more coherent response to COVID-19. So, uh, you and I, we, we talked about, hey, what's the art of the possible for taking this model that really does appear to be working very well in the Indo-Pacific and applying that to Africa? Um, and just listening to the conversation, we're talking about multilateralism. I wonder if one of the reasons why the Quad Plus it has seen some success in, in the Indo-Pacific is because it's a minilateral arrangement. You hear a lot about minilateralism in, in the Indo-Pacific, essentially a smaller group of countries working together on a very focused topic. And and you see that with the Quad Plus grouping of countries really focused on COVID-19 response. Uh, But essentially, we talked about that model. And then you, of course, uh, with your Africa expertise, talked about how to apply that on the ground across the continent. And then I think really, we we talked about the the costs of inaction, essentially, of not having this type of effective multilateral uh, framework or loose operating way in Africa just due to COVID and the havoc that it's wreaking. And then also just the implications of leaving the field to China. So I just, I found the application, the idea of applying that model to Africa uh, very interesting. First of all, I like this idea of minilateralism. I haven't heard that. And I think that's really interesting. And I think when we're talking about maybe the GERD or Mauritius and the, you know, the Chagos Islands, or we're talking about some other issues, we need to think about that model. But then more broadly, how do we deal with some big issues? And again, a changing geography in where we, the US and the EU typically have one way of thinking about Africa, but that's not really the reality if you match trade and security relations and diplomatic relations. So we're going to try to do more of this thinking at CSIS, including some papers. So I I encourage our listeners to, to stay tuned. And let me just thank our three guests for joining me today. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thanks, Jed. Thanks, Jed. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.